that is all very different and can be very far away from recognizing that this is not the role of the inclusion, diversity and equity program manager or um, someone who's just passionate about this stuff. It's your role. Welcome everyone to Culture by Design. I'm excited today to welcome as a guest, uh, Chantel LaRue, and she's coming to us from Berlin. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, Chantel. She's an inclusion, diversity and equity program manager for Amazon Web Services. She has a background in transpersonal psychology and special needs education. That's you're going to need to tell us about that, Chantel. That's a, a fascinating combination. Her work focuses on supporting people and recognizing and reaching their potential. Chantel, welcome. Thank you for joining us for this episode. Thank you for having me, Tim. It's great to be in your company, in your space. I love the work you do. I'm a huge fan of Leader Factors, so this is a treat. Well, it's a privilege for, for me. Chantel, let's go back and let's just start with your personal story a little bit. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing. When you were a child, let's start with that. I think what I'd speak to is how my upbringing has framed my journey into this workspace because it is very much aligned with my purpose. So I was born very premature. And I mention this because I had a few developmental difficulties as a kid. And I was incredibly insecure, often described as oversensitive and too talkative and didn't really fit in. And so for me, when I talk now in my workspace about this fundamental need we have to belong, this is very close to home. And I have a lot of empathy in this space. Another thing I'll mention from my childhood is I started so badly that I pretty much gave up on speaking for a while. And at the time, that was really tough. But years later, when I became a therapist and was supporting kids and adults in various areas, including speech, you know, I was able to reframe that. It gave me a huge amount of empathy and insight, and it made me the therapist that I am. So um, feel free to dig in more. Um, you know, there is, there is a lot we could unpack, as with any human, I guess. There is so much that shapes us. Did you move around as a child? Uh, not initially. I mean, I'm born and raised in South Africa and moved around the country a lot. But my first big move was to Beijing, China. And I lived there for almost eight years on and off. And Beijing is in many ways my home. I think it always will be. I did a lot of growing up there. I also got my first job in Beijing. It was a big deal. and. Um, my mom lived there for more than 20 years. And then I've lived and worked in the States, and uh, now I'm in Berlin. So you mentioned your start, rough start. By the time you got to, say, high school, what was life like? I hated school, Tim. <laughs> I say that with a big dose of humor because I'm also a teacher. That's part of my background. So uh, school was not a, a good experience for me. I had some key and amazing teachers that I was very connected to, but they were few and far between. And so leaving school was just, it felt like freedom. And it was, I think university 
just allows so much more freedom to figure out who you are and who you aren't and to, to do things differently. But I've always been very academic. So let me ask a question on that. One of the things that we have to acknowledge based on all the research out there is that learning is both an intellectual and an emotional process. And so when you look back and you say, I hated school, what's at the root of that? Was it the emotional side? Was it this, was it fitting in? Was it social and psychological? Because I would assume that it wasn't the intellectual part. It was actually both. I didn't fit in. I had a few close friends and that could sustain me. That was fine. And I became more and more comfortable with not fitting in. It's certainly not something I would wish upon myself right now is this need to fit in, right? Need to belong. That's something different. But I found school really boring and unstimulating. And that is because, you know, I'm a child of the 80s. <laughs> and education, fortunately, has changed in many ways to be a bit more holistic and uh, to include various ways of learning. But I found my education experience at school just very narrow, very dry. Let's uh, fast forward a little bit. You have a background in transpersonal psychology and special needs education. Can you explain what transpersonal psychology is and then this combination and, and maybe how that has helped and informed the, the work that you do now? Transpersonal psychology has been around for a long time, since the 70s. Many people don't know what it means. Right. They've heard of different kinds of psychology, but not so much transpersonal. I think that is a branding issue. We're not great at marketing ourselves, but it's a huge field. It's fundamentally about psychology beyond the ego, beyond the personal ego. So when I'm working with a client, I'm not just looking at what is going on for them as an individual in the world. I'm looking at how they're connected to their surroundings, their environment, their family, their society their sense of belonging and purpose, their role in, in our ecosystem, in the universe. Um, that is the transpersonal aspect. And it covers fields from altered states of consciousness and exploring how those can be used as healing modalities to various kinds of art and movement therapy, working a lot with the body and mind connection, all the way through to shamanistic psychology. So it is a broad field. And you know, in my therapy practice, I was working with many clients who suffered from addiction, personality disorders, and then various comorbid diagnoses, and then lots of special needs. And my work has always had a strong focus on kids and adults on the autism spectrum, because I specialized in autism. And that's also, as a teacher, I was always a special needs teacher specializing in autism. And all of this has... It's been actually, it's been a really clear path to where I am now in the corporate space. And I know it doesn't seem obvious to most people. When most people are in touch with me now, and they haven't been for a while, they just can't believe I'm in the corporate space. It's like, what are you doing there? That doesn't make any sense. To me, it totally makes sense. You know, I am, like you said before, I'm into helping people realize their potential, no matter the setting, right? And my transpersonal background means. I can see beyond a lot of boxes, which is really helpful. And I was in my therapy practice supporting more and more adults, especially on the autism spectrum and with various challenges. I was supporting them in their workplace, but as a consultant, so from the outside. 
And I very quickly realized, I don't think this is making any difference, right? How could I measure the impact? I don't really know my clients. I don't know who I'm talking to. I can't influence policy from the outside. And I really don't want to be part of a, an effort to just look good. I'm not part of a branding strategy. The work I do needs to be meaningful and substantial in terms of helping people through transformation. And so for me, that was a very clear signal that it was time to shift my work into the corporate space. How did you do that initially? Was that a gradual process or did you kind of come to a realization on a particular day? How did that happen? It started, I guess, with Amazon Web Services in Cape Town asking me to host an autism-specific training. And that was a really interesting experience. I got to know the organization and our values. And I thought, wow, this is a super interesting and challenging space. And I love the challenge. So that was really compelling. And then after that, I deliberately started looking for work in the corporate space and started my journey with AWS in Cape Town. And I'm still with Amazon Web Services, but now from Billet. And my team is global. So the move hasn't really impacted my role. What does it mean at AWS to be an inclusion, diversity, and equity program manager? What, what it, can you describe that role? Well, Tim, my role is business embedded, which means I get to spend quality time with my customers, my customers being Amazonians, right? The employees, the people who make it happen. And I get to deep dive into their world, always with a lens on what kind of inclusion are they experiencing? What level of psychological safety are they experiencing? And how can I empower them to create more psychological safety? That is the core of all of my work, all of the programs that I run. And they take various forms, but a big part of the work has just been socializing these ideas, socializing what is psychological safety? Why are we doing this? What does it have to do with inclusion? There is a lot to unpack there. And I think um, you know, a big part of my work is meeting people where they're at so that they can actually access the information. Again, like for me, meaningful work means I can actually see it making a difference. I'm not interested in doing this just because... We need this role. When do you know that you're making a difference? How do you know that you're making a difference? Is it at an individual level? Are there larger indicators at a group or team or organizational level? But how do you know that you're having impact? Well, in the short term, the most obvious way to know is when you're speaking to an individual about their experience and they can tell you how it's changed or is changing how their perspective has changed or how the environment has changed, or maybe both. And an example of that is someone saying, I've changed the way I feel about my workplace. I feel like I can be myself. I feel like I can show up and contribute in a really wholehearted way. And I feel supported. I can see my team is taking risks more and more, right? And our brainstorming sessions are becoming more and more interesting. People are coming out of their shells. And now that thing you spoke about, that contributor safety thing, I get it. That's where I see most of the change. On a team level, there's a lot of outputs we can look at, right? Things like innovation, how much collaboration is happening, how much candid discussion is happening. And then also on a team level, we can, of course, use the de facto survey, which is really powerful 
to measure each level of psychological safety. I don't think that is a straightforward measure of impact because of all the various factors that impact psychological safety. So it's not about, you know, part of my work is constantly trying to explain to people this is an ongoing journey. It's not that you're doing uh, great today and better tomorrow and then you're there. And I think for many humans, it's a challenging idea. What do you mean? <laughs> I need to keep showing up and doing this work every single day. So it's it's a big shift in mindset. And when I can see that people are shifting gears and shifting their mindset to get into this for the long term. And this is a real key Amazonian concept is long-term ownership. So explain that a little bit, Chantel. What does that mean in the context of, of Amazon? A big part of this is when I make a decision as a leader at Amazon, I'm thinking long-term. And I'm thinking like an owner. I'm not thinking about right now, what is the fastest, easiest, potentially for me, the most convenient thing to do? What is going to make me or my organization look good right now? It's an investment. It's a different kind of mindset. And it also means sometimes sacrificing certain things short term, including your own comfort, right? And that's a big part of inclusion is oftentimes we need to put inclusion ahead of our own comfort. And we're able to do that and be resilient knowing that this is a long-term investment. With a lot of inclusion work, people just want to get there faster. I understand why. I think a lot of this work feels quite desperate or quite overwhelming, or you can see gaps and challenges and you just want to make a difference right now. And again, it comes back to showing up every day and doing the work. So there's, there's no real way to microwave inclusion, Chantel. You can't really, can't take a shortcut. Well, yeah. If we were to just focus on diversity and not inclusion and equity, and this is, I think, this very global conversation at the moment, what is that going to look like? It's going to look like a lot of very disgruntled people leaving because we haven't created an environment where they can thrive. So um, it's not that the short term doesn't count. And it's certainly not that we shouldn't focus on diversity. But we have to get behind this ongoing process called inclusion if we really want to make sustainable change and not have people burn out. Let's go deeper into inclusion. What insights can you share with us about inclusion specifically that you've learned as a practitioner that might be helpful for other leaders and other folks in, in all kinds of organizations that, that are listening to us today? The first thing I would say, which might put a lot of people off, so I'm hoping people stick around for the rest of the conversation. The first thing I'd say is this is about really getting to know yourself. This is deep personal work. And the reason I say that is inclusion is not a superficial practice. You don't just go through some kind of motions and steps and check boxes, and then you're doing the thing called inclusion or creating psychological safety. This comes from how you show up as a human. And I think many of us, Either we've been role modeled this or taught this in some way. We think that there's the work version of ourselves and then there's the, the other version, right? So if I'm working on an essential leadership skill, for example, one that contributes to psychological safety, that is a work thing. And when the work day is over, that work stops too. And that's not how this works. When you um, get on this journey of building inclusion and are sincere about it and committed to it and thinking long-term, it means deep diving into who am I as a human being? What are my personal values? How do those align 
with the organizational values that we have, with our principles, with how we make decisions. What are my beliefs? What are my biases? How is my upbringing, like we've spoken about? How has that impacted me? All of this is um, fundamental ongoing work as well. And that's what is really exciting for me about the work is it is deep and meaningful, and it's about the whole human. Let me see if I'm getting this. If it's about who you are, then the context is not going to change who you are. You're not going to compartmentalize who you are. You're not going to have different versions of who you are. Am I following this? Yeah. Well, not if you're authentic, right? Not if you're really showing up. Then, no, you don't get to have different versions. You can switch gears, right? You do change how you show up depending on context, but that doesn't mean you change who you are. So, of course, you know, depending on who you're speaking to, your relationship with them, the culture that you're in at the moment, that will change the way you interact with someone. But it doesn't change who you are and your values and your beliefs. And so the more mindful we can be about who we are as humans, obviously, the more mindful we are as leaders. And then when we start to attend trainings for all these essential leadership skills, it goes a long way if we're already doing this deep personal work. When you do this, when you're helping people this way, and I loved what, the way that you framed it, Chantel, you said it's deep personal work. It's taking self-awareness and self-discovery and self-knowledge to another level. But in that journey, do you often find that we have to fight against acquired socialization, against the way we've been acculturated? Because I know, for example, let's just take one concept. And that is early in my career, I, I was taught that you need to keep a healthy, safe, professional distance from people, right? And that often turns into kind of a really superficial relationship and you just don't develop the bonds and the intimacy that you would want to have. But people kind of cordoned off work life and said, well, your terms of engagement are way different over here. And this is the way you need to do it. So back to the question, we do you find that we have to unlearn some things in order to, to get that right if we're doing that deep personal work? Yes, I do. And I'm also a great fan of healthy boundaries, right? Healthy boundaries are key for healthy relationships. So this is not about having no boundaries. And it's not about bringing everything personal into the workspace, but it means what I do bring is authentic. It's not a superficial version of myself. And that means whatever personal work I am doing will show up through this authentic version of myself, this authentic me. Uh, that doesn't change. Many people, when they realize how personal this work is and that it is essential to being a leader in the workplace, they're really uh, relieved. It's like, wow, I didn't know that was the requirement. This is really good to hear because it takes a load off. I think it's a huge burden and we often don't realize we're carrying it to think you have to have more than one, one of you, right? The, the you that shows up at work and is whatever you think professional means and however you think you need to behave and be. And then you get home and you can just kind of relax and take it all off. I think that is a huge burden. And we often carry it around not knowing. 
And this, Tim, you know, it's something I used to do and no one told me. I had to figure that out for myself. I was like, Chantel, what are you doing? And I had to really rethink and learn. How do you want to show up in the world? And that is how you're going to show up in your workspace. Why? Because you can. And you realize when you do that, the quality of your interactions, your scope of influence is much greater. The conversations you have are more meaningful, right? Things are more productive, more efficient. Like this is just more of all the good things that we want in the workplace. But there are healthy boundaries. I can't help but think about the connection between the way we present ourselves and then the way others are able to feel inclusion. Because if you're not presenting your true authentic self, then how do I connect with that? If it's not genuine, if it's not authentic, then how do I connect with you? If you're surface acting, for example, then it's not real and I can feel that. I think we have an innate sense, uh, ability to feel intent, right? We have natural equipment to be able to sense intent and genuineness and authenticity. And so if it's not there, then how do I get a sense of belonging in an artificial environment if people are acting that way? I think that's going to be hard. Exactly. Because what they're picking up is you're not safe to be yourself. I'm certainly not safe to be mine. A great question that comes up quite a bit is, Chantel, I'm really wanting to be authentic. I really do. But (laughs) I don't know when I am because I'm still figuring that out. I'm still figuring out like all the layers of, is this me? Is this authentic me? Or is this what I've been taught to be and do and say? And the way I figured this out was spending lots of time with kids in my therapy practice and as a teacher, right? Because little humans... I think are really good at indicating when you're not being authentic. They can pick it up and they're not going to give you the time of day if you're not being real with them. You know, like why? They're not part of the social game. Whereas at work, it can obviously be pretty awkward and challenging to say, um, Tim, I don't think you're showing up in a real way right now. What's going on with you? But a kid will. It reminds me early in my career, I had a boss. He was a a well-intentioned person, a good person, but he was so scripted and rehearsed and staged that I could not connect with him. There was no opening. There was no point of entry. There was no way for me to get in to build rapport and to create a relationship there. It, it didn't matter. I'd, I'd come from the left. I'd come from the right. I'd, I'd try to find an opening. There was no opening. He was so good at his act and I, I could never get there. And, uh, he was my boss for about two years. I could never get there. He wouldn't let me in. He was doing his professional presentation of himself. And so that's just a case study for me. And it prevented inclusion. There was no way. There was nothing to connect to because it was artificial. It was superficial. At some point, it's a real liability because as we know, the connection with the immediate supervisor based on research is the most important connection that governs overall retention in the organization. It's that, that relationship. Have you found that to be true? I have. And I also think that 
I'm in a slightly different position in my work now because I am an IDE program manager. So I see my role as when I encounter someone who's pretty shut down to being authentic. I really consider it my role to insist on showing up and being authentic over and over. And it's not with the intention of changing them. It's just that I have to sometimes put in a lot of effort to keep doing that and insist on being authentic and being open to that relationship. Because when and if they are ready, there will be a way in. And part of that for me is insisting also on recognizing more than what is on the surface. In other words, if I'm speaking to someone who is who seems really shut down and scripted, I can recognize they're probably really fearful or insecure, and they need a lot of support. They don't need judgment. And so I become that person. If you need me, I'm here. And I'm not afraid to have tough conversations with you. And I'm not afraid to um, sit with you for a while in awkwardness while we figure something out. But I'm still here and I'm still showing up. And as awkward as this might be from the outside, uh, for me, it's still really worthwhile to show up and be authentic and just hold the space for whatever happens. But I think many people don't do that. When someone is shut down, they don't hold the space. They're like, okay, whatever. I don't think we're going to have a relationship or I'm just going to avoid you. And that's okay. But that's not my role. I love what you said. I'm willing to sit with you in awkwardness. And then maybe at some point you will relax and disarm and let down your guard and Maybe there's an access point there. I love that. That works, doesn't it? It does. And you know, Tim, when you can start to see that authentic person coming out, it is just so joyful, right? That is a really real connection with another human. And it's incredibly vulnerable. And that is where transformation happens. Let's connect this, what we've been talking about, Chantel, to the inclusion as an applied discipline as a practice, not just a theory, because I know this is a big insight for you. Tell us about that. So I think, especially in today's global climate, who is not going to put up their hand and say, I'm all for inclusion? And I think a lot of that is very genuine, right? We all want to be inclusive leaders. The leaders I work with, for sure, they do want to be inclusive leaders. And they might even understand the theory. So, I mean, just unpacking the theory of why inclusion is core business, there's, there's a lot there. There's a lot we need to get our heads around and our hearts around. But even if you're up for all of that and you, you get the theory of inclusion and you do believe it's core business and you're prepared to assign resources to the space, that is all very different and can be very far away from recognizing that this is not the role of the inclusion, diversity and equity program manager or um, someone who's just passionate about this stuff. It's your role. And you need to show up every single day as an inclusive leader. And there are many uh, strategies that we can provide and we do to empower you to do that. There's a lot of support along the journey because you will screw up, right? That's also part of the journey. But it's an ongoing practice. It's not agreeing to it in theory. It is committing to a daily practice. And as empowering as that can be, it can also be a lot. I think it can be quite overwhelming. 
if you're not prepared for it. What do you say to people and how do you help them when, as you said, it's a daily practice, but they are getting discouraged or they're not happy with their progress or they're making mistakes. What do you say to them? How do you help them? Usually that is about some kind of inner work that needs to happen for that leader. It's often about this isn't happening the way I'd like it to happen. So there's an issue there with expectations. I thought that I would do this thing differently in my meetings and I would get a certain outcome and I haven't. And that's really frustrating or disheartening, right? Uh, part of it might be about unrealistic expectations or really focusing on the wrong thing, the wrong outcome. Another part of it might be I'm exhausted. Yes, I'm a leader. I have a vital role to play and I am exhausted. There is a lot going on. So this practice is exhausting and I kind of want to break. And that's very human. Especially with inclusion, it takes so much emotional energy. And you have a day job, which is mostly about executing and all of the enormous work that you have to do. For some people, that additional emotional workload that you're asking me to do, that can be overwhelming. There's two kind of main ways I think about this, Tim. And the one is any strategy I provide a leader and I support people with is embedded into what they do. It's not an optional extra and it's not over and above. So I'm very interested in looking at what you already do and how we can insert inclusive strategies into that. So it's not an extra lift. It's changing how you do things. And oftentimes the exhausted leader who's talking to me about this, the things that are really draining them, it's not the workload. It is the, uh, the human stuff, right? It's dealing with all kinds of issues related to the human beings that we support. And that is really exhausting. And if we commit to these practices of building inclusion, we address the root cause of many of these other issues, right? That are draining you right now. And that's across the business in every role and every corner of being business. So the one thing is to look at how can we integrate strategies better and align them with what you're already doing. I don't go with a wish list and say, here are the things I'd like you to do. It's what is viable, what is going to meet your team, where they're at, and what can you take on right now? But then you commit to it and you do it consistently. And the other thing for me is boundaries. You might be a leader and feel a huge amount of responsibility and pressure to create psychological safety and do all the stuff and get it right. But you can only do what you can do on that day. And some days it's not going to be as great as other days. And it might not be as intense or as intentional. And that's okay. And for me, that's a boundary issue. And the personal work there is often self-compassion, which I think more than any of the strategies we often talk about, I think self-compassion is one of the most misunderstood, underused, and one of the hardest things that we can ask people to do. So explain that. Well, the first thing I explain is self-compassion is not about you. It's about everyone you support. Because many people have and will say to me, Chantel, the self-compassion thing, I'm not really sure what it is what it looks like or why I need it. Like I've got through the last 40 years without it and I'm doing fine. And my response is always, okay, but think about this. It's about role modeling self-compassion. And when you do that, you give others permission to do the same. That's why you do it. And often that kind of perspective is a light bulb moment. 
and it's energizing. It's like, oh, if I'm doing this for the people I support, oh, that's different altogether. I will definitely do that because I'm an awesome manager and I'm passionate about the people I support. But will I do it for myself? No. That's so fascinating. Though we're animated and motivated to do that for others, motivated enough to do it, but we don't feel that kind of same motivation when we think about ourselves. That's almost, that's ironic. Yeah, it's tragic. I think we are taught this in many different ways. With all the people I've worked with across the globe, no matter where they grew up, which culture, which society, what kind of beliefs, we all know phrases like toughen up, get a thicker skin, don't take it personally, don't be so sensitive, it's not about you. Basically, be hard on yourself. These are universal um, patterns that get stuck in our minds and in our bodies, and they really affect how we show up. And these are compassion blockers for sure. I like the way you, you frame that, compassion blockers. Do you have any other insights to share concerning inclusion specifically? Yeah, I, I think often and in many different ways, when many of us think about inclusion, we still have quite a superficial idea of what we're including. And so it might be something very surface level, like, yes, inclusion means lots of people all together and they look somewhat different from each other, or maybe they're from different places on the planet. That's inclusion. And I think that's the point. And that's not it. Inclusion is so much more than that. And it's also definitely not about tolerating all these different people and mindsets and beliefs and backgrounds and identities. It's not about tolerating them. It's about accepting them in a very deep and meaningful way, which in my previous life as a transpersonal therapist, I would use the word love is a big part of inclusion. And it's big love. It's a universal love. And that can only really come when you understand things like self-compassion and why it's an essential leadership skill and how um, how I treat myself, how that really impacts you, how I show up in our relationship is about me, that those boundaries between me and you and all these different people that we're trying to include, a lot of those boundaries are actually not substantial, that we're a lot more connected than we recognize. So that's maybe a long-winded way of saying, Tim, I think inclusion is much more about human connection on lots of different levels than we tend to talk about. I think maybe a lot of times we kind of frame inclusion as toleration. We're going way beyond toleration. I like to think of it as celebrating, right? If you really want to get there, this is about celebrating, not just celebrating differences, celebrating whole humans, all of it. Can we just go back and talk a little bit more about ownership, owning inclusion at a personal level. What have you learned about that, Chantel? Because ultimately we talk about it institutionally. We talk about it, right? We, we communicate it in organizational terms and we talk about our cultures in organizational terms and we want certain prevailing norms in the organization. And we want the organization to behave in certain ways, but Ultimately, it comes down to the individual, doesn't it? So any uh, counsel or advice in this area? Well, I don't know if it's counsel advice, but I'll, I'll just tell you how I think about ownership. Ownership means 
when you're walking down the street, not in your workplace, and you observe something that could be a subtle act of exclusion happening to anyone, it is not okay with you. And you become an ally in that moment. You choose to do something about it. That's ownership. And the reason you're doing something about it is because you have a really complete understanding of not addressing that subtle act of exclusion there on the street impacts your workplace, no matter what your workplace is, right? And it impacts you as a leader in your workplace, no matter what your role is. And for many people, that can be a really big stretch. It's like, really, does it? Yes, it does. Everything um, within the workplace reflects what's going on around the workplace, of course. And again, the way I see the organization, it's really interesting to think about this, especially when you're thinking about Amazon, right? And the size of the organization and the impact we have across the globe. It's very clear to see that we're embedded in everything else that is happening. And that's what I mean by ownership. There is no boundary between addressing something in the workplace and addressing it outside of the workplace. It's not that your values suddenly shift or if you're a, a really strong ally for inclusion in the workplace, you're not going to stop being that ally outside of the workplace. That's ownership. But if, if you can still turn this on and off at will or just because you're not thinking about it, I would say ownership needs a bit more development. Ownership means in every context, all the time, no off switch, because those are your values. In every relationship, exactly. In every relationship. Yeah. And it's to say, if I'm doing the work in one space, I'll do it in the other space. Here's just one other idea that to me is also about ownership. When I still had a car in South Africa, now I don't, but I would be driving and I'd watch myself get really tense with another driver for whatever reason. And this is a practice I started many years ago still as a therapist, but it's this idea of, what if that was one of my clients? Now, how do I feel? And it's not just about, I want my clients to think I'm a kind, compassionate driver who keeps their cool all the time. It's, hold on. It's not what if that was one of my clients or what if that was a family member. It may as well be, right? It is. That is a mindset that we can practice. Instead, again, of having these all these boxes and you know superficial boundaries that we put in place so that we don't have to be owners of inclusion all day long. That's great insight. Chantel, I want to come back to, I think it's yeah, the first point you made about uh, knowing yourself, getting to a more penetrating level of self-awareness. It seems to me that this is not an easy thing to do. It requires some excavation. And in that process of excavation, we are all dripping as humans with bias. We drip with bias, all of us. And we are bundles of demographics. And so if that's true, then I've got conscious and unconscious biases. So in the process of my excavation, in the process of knowing myself or trying to get to know myself better, do you have any advice for doing that excavation effectively and for making unconscious biases become conscious? The simplest and most effective strategy I can offer at this stage is really getting curious about your self-talk. And self-talk is that stuff going on in your head all day long. Sometimes it's a monologue, sometimes it's a dialogue, sometimes it's in your voice, sometimes it's in someone else's voice. And a lot of the time it's judgments, either judgments on yourself or on whatever you're seeing. And judgment's not a bad thing. 
but it's a thing. And when you want to get to know your biases, you've got to look at how you judge things. And judging includes filtering information. That's the judgment, right? This is what I'm going to choose to focus on. This is what I'm going to choose to ignore. This is how I'm going to choose to interpret what's happening around me and what you're saying. But doing this with compassion, that's key. Not observing self-talk with more judgment. That's not going to be helpful. But doing it with compassion and curiosity. And at Amazon, we put a lot of focus on this. So you're saying try to evaluate and examine your own self-talk. In the beginning, I would say don't even, don't even evaluate, just observe. Otherwise, what can easily happen is you get really stuck into the analysis process and you don't really know what you're even looking for. But if you can just first learn to observe, to listen and acknowledge, okay, that's my self-talk. That's really, really interesting. And then I guess the next phase would be, now I'm able to listen. What am I listening for? Now I'm doing research, right? What are the patterns? What are the themes? That's really interesting. Wow, that was really harsh. Where did that come from? And again, it's not, I just heard something really harsh in my self-talk. I must be a terrible person. It's that's really interesting. I wonder where that comes from. And this is the deep personal work, but you do it with compassion. Otherwise, you're going to shut that door again. Um, and so that's how I think you can unearth these things in a way that's actually pretty simple and you can do it all day long. And this is a big part of mindfulness. You know, many people want to be more mindful, but they don't really know what that means. And this is one way to start. I like the way that you said that. So begin step one observation, no judgments, just awareness and appreciation for what's going on. Step two, okay, now we're going to get into pattern recognition, what's happening, what patterns do you see? Why? But you're doing it with compassion so you don't shut yourself down. Is that accurate? And really like a researcher. So for those of us who are into research, especially qualitative research, you know, this is really, no matter what comes up in the research, this is so interesting and I'm so grateful. No matter what comes up, thank you. I'm so grateful. This is really, really helpful. And if you can see your own journey that way, I think you're going to go a lot deeper, a lot quicker. This is so amazing. And, th and this may, hopefully this will be enlightening to people, but your self-talk is this, is a whole rich qualitative data set that is there. It's there. It's always there, but are you mining that data? And are you um, taking that opportunity because it's there? Yeah. And you know, this um, is such a great opportunity for inclusive leadership. Because if you can do that with yourself, can you imagine the compassion you're going to have with others as opposed to judgment? It begins with yourself. Yeah. That's brilliant, Chantel. That's brilliant. Well, as we conclude our conversation today, which by the way, has been just incredible. Um, do you have any final insights or advice that you would like to give? Yeah, I think um, be kind to yourself. Be on this journey, be committed, hold yourself accountable, you know, have high standards. Yes, be an owner and be kind to yourself. And what I love about this work is you can't really do it without practicing self-compassion and self-kindness. It just doesn't work. And just to recognize it is a journey, right? And some days you're going to show up differently and that's okay. And that's interesting. Thank you for that. Chantel, you, you are a measured, deliberate, incredibly insightful person. And I cannot thank you enough for this conversation. 
This is going to be helpful to many people. Thank you, Tim, for having me, and thank you for the work you do. It makes a huge difference. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining me today on the Culture by Design podcast. Be sure to subscribe and listen to new episodes every week. And if you'd like to see more of the work we're doing, go to leaderfactor.com.